0: So, Rachel, I was reading Storm Number 10.
1: Ooh, good pick, Miles.
0: I know, right? Anyway, who's this Kenji dude? He's from Generation Hope, isn't he?
1: Yeah, he's one of the Lights. Actually, he also ended up being the main villain of the series. The Lights? A group of newly manifested mutants tied to Hope. She was able to help stabilize their powers, but she ended up with a lot of residual and varyingly conscious influence over them, which Kenji did not dig even a little, ironically.
0: Ironically, how so?
1: Well, cause he was all about mind control
0: himself. Wait wait wait, I thought his powers were physical, like growing tentacles, expanding and absorbing people, stuff like that.
1: Well, yeah, but early on he used them to make a new body for Martha Johansson, that's no girl. And he discovered that since it was technically still his body, it let him tap into her telepathic powers.
0: And he used those powers to mind control people.
1: Well, not directly. Because of the way Kenji's powers worked, he could only control people by way of his own body.
0: He couldn't just build new bodies for everyone.
1: Well, no, but he could work pieces of himself into all of their brains. What?! I'm Rachel Editon and
0: I'm Miles Stokes
1: and we are here. explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to the 53rd episode of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera and with that I guess we're into year two.
0: We are in fact into our second year of recording which is super surreal.
1: What the hell is even happening?
0: Well, uh, what's happening as far as X-Men is similarly a sort of new start for them too. Well that's convenient. It's almost as if we planned it that way. My God! With the help of a lot of timing coincidence.
1: And a calendar. Yes. The podcasts are coming from inside the
0: Studio. The studio. They always do. Anyway, what's been going on lately is that basically Xavier has left the planet, and that's really changed a lot for a lot of people, as will the pending return from the grave of Jean Grey.
1: Whoa, 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 whoa. So let's go back a little bit pre-Xavier leaving the planet and the state of the teams leading into that, because that's the climax of a lot of story.
0: So we have the Asgardian Wars, which is where we had 17 various X characters get transported to the assorted Norse realms. Right,
1: and that crossed an annual and a special...
0: Right, both Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants, and that led directly into Uncanny X-Men number 200, which is the trial of Magneto. Magneto's been sort of gradually becoming more sympathetic, and at this point he's basically with the X-Men after Xavier recruited him to help fight against the Beyonder.
1: Which is going to continue to screw everything up for a few more months.
0: Yeah, sorry about that in advance, guys, but we gotta cover it, it's our duty. Sigh. So, yes, uh, Magneto was found not guilty by way of other supervillains attacking and making Magneto look good by comparison-
1: That's a pretty good way to get off on a trial, especially if you're a vaguely morally gray villain like Magneto. I'm just
0: saying the next time I have a parking ticket, I know exactly how it's going to go. I'm going to contact the Strucker twins. It's going to be fine.
1: Oh, you really don't want to do that. It probably helps to have, you know, a supervillain as the prosecutor, too. James Jaspers.
0: Well, can I at least wear a giant M on my chest? It's my initial, too.
1: Magneto ruined it for everyone, Miles.
0: God damn it, Eric. Anyway, so, yeah, that's basically where we are right now. Xavier, at the end of that issue, was taken away to space, he had been severely injured during a mugging, and the Starjammers said they could heal him.
1: He makes Magneto promise to give up his life of crime, take over the school, and run the X-Men.
0: Right, and Magneto's like, um, I don't really feel very uh, suited to this, but, you know, this is your maybe- Xavier's like,
1: promise me!
0: Swear to me! Yeah, I can't can't do the voice. Well, neither can Christian Bale. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, oh, I,
1: I hate those movies.
0: <laughs> I like them.
1: They're very stylish.
0: Well, anyway, let's talk about who's on the team right now.
1: Nominally leading the team right now is Nightcrawler. I say nominally because Nightcrawler is not much of a leader. And most of the time, Shadowcat, who's 15, ends up basically taking over during missions because Kurt is caught in moments of intense indecision while people are dying.
0: Right. And we also have Wolverine and Colossus, who have been on the team pretty nonstop for quite a while. We have Rachel Summers, who's come back from the future to do confusing things and get the power of the Phoenix.
1: She is Scott and Jean's grown-up daughter from an alternate timeline, specifically the Days of Future Past timeline.
0: So very straightforward there. And then we also have Rogue.
1: Mystique had actually brought her to the X-Men because Rogue was having trouble controlling her powers, and she was going slowly insane after full sail absorbing the psyche and powers of Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers.
0: Now, two names you will recognize as not in that list are Cyclops and Storm, the traditional leaders of the X-Men.
1: Right, so Cyclops has been in Alaska. He is married to a woman named Madeline Pryor in a marriage that is gradually spiraling down the drain. I mean, he literally got kidnapped to space for Secret Wars 1 during their honeymoon.
0: And it was his last day before retirement, too.
1: I wasn't even supposed to be here today.
0: And uh, Storm, who has been without her powers for a while due to a government ray gun, She's been going off trying to find herself in some really excellent Barry Windsor Smith stories, getting periodically dragged back herself. She's now pretty much back with the team for the long haul.
1: Right. Now, while the X-Men were in Paris and running around trying to keep themselves from being progressively slandered during the trial of Magneto, Madeline, Scott's wife, was back at the X-Mansion giving birth to their kid.
0: And this is Nathan Christopher Charles Ascani Dayspring Summers. He doesn't get the Ascani
1: and Dayspring stuff until later. Right now, he's Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. They're calling him Chris or Christopher after Scott's dad. He is nominally named after both their fathers. Who the Nathan actually comes from is a little bit more complicated, but we're not going to get to that for a really, really long time. So live in suspense.
0: One could even say it's a little bit more sinister.
1: God damn it.
0: (laughs) Um, Now, of course, we also have the new mutants, and they are currently in their long-term lineup of all nine characters, just to very quickly go through. That's Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Mirage, Karma, Magma, Magic, Cypher, and Warlock. The way we're going to do this episode is going to be a little bit different than our usual continuity-based episodes in that we're going to cover an issue of Uncanny X-Men, an issue of New Mutants, and then some issues of some other non-X-Books that lead up to the resurrection of Jean Grey.
1: There's a lot of crossing over happening at this point. and Actually, the resurrection of Jean happens in Avengers and Fantastic Four, not in X-Men. So we're going to be kind of jumping around. And what we're hopefully going to do is basically look at the four issues that take the X-Men from the previous pre-trial of Magneto status quo To the new status quo at the start of sort of what I think of as the fourth big era of X-Men.
0: That specifically being the one where X-Factor starts.
1: So let's talk about some comics. We're going to start with X-Men 201, drawn by Rick Leonardi at Will Portasio, and man... I think these guys are my favorite of the regular fill-ins.
0: Yeah, I was a little iffy on them at first, but I was quickly sold over the course of the issue. I think I'm with you there.
1: What Leonardi does with body language and faces, with the narrative that's going around outside of the language, is really impressive. Um, This is a Claremont comic. Claremont comics tend to be intensely and aggressively wordy, and (laughs) um, Leonardi is very, very good at working with that, starting from the very first page, which is a close-up of every single character who's there. Clustered around Madeline and the baby and reacting to it, and most of them seem pretty happy with two notable exceptions.
0: And who were those?
1: Well, first of all, there's Rachel Summers, and she's having a really rough time with this because, damn it, that baby was supposed to be her.
0: The second is Cyclops, which is interesting. You know, you'd think this would be the happiest day of his life, but he's sort of off brooding in a corner.
1: Yeah, he's got a lot going on right now. But he's obviously really, really conflicted over being a parent.
0: I also want to point out Wolverine's reaction, which is he's like, he just does not give a shit. He's like, yeah, whatever, a baby. Like, I could totally kick that baby's ass.
1: God, I wish he actually said that. Also, you pointed out in your notes that Rachel has another hella sweet business suit situation going on.
0: Yeah. Rachel Summer's ability to rock the living crap out of men's fashion in this era never ceases to impress me.
1: Right. It's so good. And I love that, like, Kitty is starting to gradually, like, either they're sharing clothes or she's just stealing stuff from Rachel's closet. <laughs>
0: I can see either of those I, being the case.
1: Pun not initially intended, but I stand by it.
0: <laughs> yeah, as all this is going on. Madeline sort of uh, wanders off while Kitty and Rachel are holding the baby. And Storm goes to talk to her saying, hey, you know, are, are you doing okay?
1: And the answer is no, because Madeline has realized that her husband really kind of sucks at person stuff.
0: And she's actually starting to question whether he even really loves her.
1: When Scott and Madeline hooked up. I mean, it was like the only era of his adult life that he'd ever not been with the X-Men. And, you know, people talk about Jean's resurrection as the point where Scott and Madeline's marriage falls apart. I wonder if those people just start with X-Factor number one because it's so obviously leading there. The other woman isn't Jean and never was Jean. It's the X-Men.
0: I completely agree. That being said, I do want to stick up for Scott and Madeline's early relationship before Scott started really worrying that the X-Men weren't going to be okay without him once it became clear that Xavier might not be around forever. Before then, I do think it was a pretty model relationship in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: totally. They were a really good example of Claremont Dynamism, the idea that characters could grow and change and grow out of stuff. And one of the things that perennially frustrates me about Cyclops in the comics, is that every time he starts to get his shit together, when someone decides that, no, he needs to be with the team, he needs to be sucked back in the story, the only way that that usually works is to basically just cut away all of that
0: growth. Yeah, it makes the character a lot more static than he could be, honestly. I think we're seeing most of the characters' growth. There was a lot of it in Grant Morrison's run. There's been a lot of it since uh, Schism, but before then, it was hard to find all that much. So Madeline's still feeling pretty bummed about, you know, Scott not even calling when they were in France and just how distant he's generally been, and she and Scott get into this big fight up in Storm's Loft.
1: Madeline thinks, and rightly so, that Scott is basically finding excuses to come back to the X-Men.
0: Listen to yourself, Scott. Are you saying you and you alone are absolutely essential to the X-Men's survival? Or are you afraid they really can get along without you? Is your life so hollow, your sense of worth so fragile, that you believe you're nothing without them?
1: And I mean, I feel like the unspoken answer is, well, yeah, pretty much.
0: You know, she's not wrong. She knows Scott really, really well. Madeline Pryor made
1: some valid points.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And so they're just sort of going around in circles here um, with Scott attempting to defend his standpoint and not being able to do so very well. Because
1: he's wrong
0: when Storm bursts in.
1: Storm has basically worked out that she really needs to just get him the hell out of there or he is going to simultaneously torpedo his marriage and the team. He doesn't trust Magneto at all. Like, I think he's actually the person who brings up the possibility that Magneto murdered Xavier and just told them all something else.
0: He does, yeah.
1: That's one of those things that I think people kind of forget in this arc. It's not just that the X-Men are in upheaval. He is in this new and vastly unfamiliar territory and dealing with the birth of his son after the loss of the guy who literally raised him. Xavier is not his biological father, but he has been there for more of Scott's life and more formative in Scott's life than anyone else.
0: Absolutely. So Storm says, all right, so here's the deal. One of us has to lead the team. That much is clear. Let's have a duel in the danger room and let's decide this unless you want to walk away from it.
1: I get why Storm does this in this situation, But I just want to point out that duels are a terrible basis for a system of government. Like, I don't really understand how one-on-one combat is supposed to demonstrate that you are qualified for, say, tactical leadership of a large strike team, or running a small intentional community.
0: I do want to go back a second because while all this drama has been going on inside the house outside of it a lot of the X-Men have been doing what they do in their downtime which is playing baseball. With superpowers. Kitty pitches her famous fastball Colossus turns into organic steel as he hits it and knocks it practically into orbit so Rogue goes after it. She can fly because she has Ms. Marvel's powers. This scene right here in my opinion is the start of the Rogue that a lot of people know and love who was most prominently shown in the animated series in the 90s.
1: I find it really bizarre that you're Definitive rogue is defined by a moment of weird mid-air flirtation with Ronald Reagan.
0: Well, okay, yes, it is. But no, so here's Rogue. She's wearing like a, a loose crop top and bikini bottoms and, and kisses the window of Air Force One as she flies by it randomly. See, before we've seen Rogue is this very down character in a lot of ways. She feels really shitty about what she did with Ms. Marvel, about her past as a supervillain, about how her mother Mystique treated her. This is her, I'm not going to say exactly getting past all of those things, because her past still does suck a lot, but starting to live more in the present and just enjoy herself and be flirtatious and enthusiastic and wry and humorous.
1: Well, and even when she was a little more relaxed before, we've never really seen her letting down her guard. This is sort of animated Rogue. This is the Rogue who's going to go into Australia, go into the 90s, and be kind of the version of Rogue that I feel like a lot of people associate with the character, at least before the movies.
0: But as far as that duel we were talking about...
1: Right. They kick the New Mutants out of the Danger Room because, you know, seniority and massive questions of team leadership, and...
0: What the uh, duel does demonstrate is something that Wolverine actually comments on, which is that Aurora is capable of being present and leading a team and being effective at what she does. Cyclops, his head's in the game, but his heart is not, and that very much comes out the way this duel goes down.
1: I mean, Storm wins, unquestionably. She gets him without his visor. He has no control of his powers, which basically means that if he tries to use them at this point, he will kill someone.
0: It actually is really cool, because you do see Cyclops you know, being kind of the effective combatant he has been in the past, but you see Storm fighting smart, fighting sneaky, and fighting a little dirty. Now, again, I do want to reiterate, she has no mutant powers at this point she is just a really badass human being
1: storm is the most badass of the x-men at this point by a wide margin and this is not just her proving why cyclops shouldn't be there it's her demonstrating inarguably that she has the chops to lead the team and to function as a full member of the team even without her powers
0: so cyclops decides to go home with madeline
1: Meanwhile, Rachel Summers is working out some issues of her own, first with, you know, baby Nathan Christopher Charles, who she makes friends with via her psychic powers and shares his thoughts with Kitty, who is still pretty iffy on the whole idea of babies. I gotta say, I'm with Kitty here, and I can't really imagine that knowing what's going on in a baby's head would help, because babies are kind of horrible id monsters.
0: I feel like you telepathically break into a baby's head, and all of a sudden you just hear, and then you recoil in horror and call Bill Murray.
1: We are not parents, in case you had not guessed. We have friends with delightful children whom we love, but children are also kind of terrifying.
0: I mean, they all have Zool in their head, or maybe Vince Clortho. Kids are all
1: different, Miles. Some of them are possessed by more benign cosmic entities.
0: And so, yeah, the other thing that Rachel does is she heads to the home of her parents, the Greys.
1: Well, her grandparents. Jean's uh, her parents. grandparents,
0: yes. Now, the last time we saw her there was when she shattered the holo-empathic crystal that contained sort of an, a psychic imprint of Jean Grey from before she died, from before Phoenix died. And
1: claimed the power and the name Phoenix.
0: And now she goes back... This is really her making peace with a lot of things she just did with her little brother, which is to say her own lack of place in the universe, and now she repairs the empathic crystal and also puts her own psychic imprint in it beside Jean, sort of making her mark, making it so that she does have a place in this world.
1: Aww. It would be more heartwarming if she didn't break in and do it while her grandparents were sleeping upstairs.
0: This is the second time she's done so, I'd like to point out. And
1: it's the first time in this set of four issues that a group of people is going to break into the Grey's home without calling because no one ever calls. Like, this is just the thing superheroes do is they go break into John and Elaine Gray's house and have Phoenix drama.
0: And so, yeah, we have kind of a, a heartwarming overall ending to this. You know, Storm is leading the X-Men, as she should. Cyclops is not in the X-Men, nor should he be. And, and Rachel going Summers... back to
1: Alaska to live happily ever after. Sorry. I can't even say that out loud for about
0: five minutes. Um, So I want to talk a little more here before we move on with why things fall apart with Scott and Madeline, because we've seen that steadily declining to a degree, but it suddenly happens very abruptly.
1: Well, the first and simplest answer is editorial mandate. The decision had been made to bring back Jean Grey, that they were going to get the original five X-Men back together on X-Factor. And that they were maybe going to rekindle the Scott and Jean romance. That wasn't certain, and that takes a very, very long time to actually happen. The general direction the wind was blowing at that point was that Scott needed to be free of Madeline for narrative reasons. I gotta say, though, my read on this is so different from the read of a lot of other people I've talked to. Oh, yeah? For a lot of folks and a lot of readers, and especially a lot of people who really, really dislike Cyclops, this specifically is the major moral of Horizon*: him leaving Maddie and Chris to go join X Factor. But he's a character who has very little sense of how to be a person. The experience of not quite understanding how relationships and common people stuff works, but looking at it tactically and thinking, well, if I do the right things in the right order... And I really want to do it right, then that's what it'll take. And he totally misses the mark. But you can sort of see him going through that sequence.
0: Right, sort of trying to treat it like an equation that can go from point A to B to C to D, and then it'll just make sense.
1: Well, like when you're looking at that stuff from the outside, when you don't have the frame of reference of being raised by people who aren't either, you know, Mr. Sinister or Professor Xavier, what you have to go on is what you observe, and what you observe are the concrete steps of those things. You know, what people do, that you get married, that you get a house together, that you say these specific things, that you want these specific things, and you don't really necessarily have a sense of of the internal logic that informs them. Maybe trying really hard and doing the right things in the right order and really wanting it isn't enough It's a really, really jarring thing, and I don't think he really recognizes what he's doing until professor xavier dies and until he's at the point where he's suddenly responsible for a kid this is the arc that kind of makes him realize just how far at sea he is and so he gravitates immediately back to the one context and environment where he knows what he's doing and he's got any basis the x-men aren't really aren't even you know i describe them as the other woman but they're more than that like they're his security blanket
0: I think they absolutely are. Yeah. I mean, with Xavier out in space, maybe dead, with, you know, the X Men's oldest nemesis running the school, he feels like the basis of stability he's always had may be starting to fall apart.
1: But what's up with the other team? The new mutants who are much more closely tied to Xavier and much more dependent on them. Suddenly have a new boss.
0: Right, a a new boss who's very different than the old boss, and not just because his fashion sense is truly outrageous by comparison.
1: Although they both have amazing eyebrows.
0: Yes, Magneto's eyebrows in this series, we still have Sinkevich on inks, even though Mary Wilshire is now penciling, and those inky eyebrows are beautiful, beautiful things.
1: Man, can we talk about this art team? So Mary Wilshire's the one who drew the Firestar limited series on pencils. Sienkiewicz on inks, and I feel like it's a best of both worlds situation because the texture and character of Sienkiewicz's inks is so recognizable and so characteristic. But Wilshire is such a good pick for a teen book because she's so expressive. She's got, she's got a lot of the same things going for her that Bob McCloud does in terms of how she draws teenagers, how expressive her art is. I started reading comics during the 90s, and that means that I came into them in an era where it was pretty fair to assume that superheroes did not dress like people. They dressed bafflingly in in clothing that was wildly out of date and was largely a byproduct of the fact that the art style and fashion at the time was basically to draw naked people and then draw seam lines onto them. So going back to New Mutants, who are very plugged into that era, is a huge treat for me. These kids all dress really differently, and they all dress in ways that are reasonably realistic for teenagers in 1986. And are also really personally expressive and really good character notes.
0: Yeah, she's also good at making the characters look very distinct from one another, which I oh always man, appreciate. Her
1: Shan is my very favourite. Yeah,
0: her karma. I completely agree. So, you know, the students are introduced to their new headmaster, Magneto, that they were not really expecting at all.
1: And they're not quite sure what to do with this, and neither actually is Magneto.
0: Right, I mean, he's, he's never done this before. It's like, you know, talking about Cyclops not being prepared to be a dad. Magneto's not prepared to be a headmaster. Magneto's like, alright, so let's get this started. I want to get a feel for what you can do. Let's do a training session. Let's meet up in the danger room. You guys are going to try to take me down.
1: Uh, word of advice. When you are a supervillain coming in and trying to establish yourself as a good guy making the first training session let's all fight might not be the best plan.
0: Well, he's he's new at this. And so, yeah, the various, the various characters are in the boys' and girls' locker rooms getting ready, and it's clear they're all kind of freaked out by what's going on. I mean, Roberto is just sort of acting out and angry, as he tends to be when things are unfamiliar. And uh, what's a little bit more surprising is that Doug Ramsey is kind of doing the same thing. He's saying, you know, hey, maybe this will be familiar for you. You know, you, you can use this opportunity to join your father in the Hellfire Club, which oh, is low blow. totally uncalled for. But Doug has been getting more and more frustrated at his feeling like he doesn't have have a role in the team because his powers aren't very combat-ish, and now there's this whole, the rug being yanked out from under him yet again. Meanwhile, the girls, they're having a little bit an easier time of it, and Ilyana's basically saying, okay, so this guy has a dark past, I have kind of a dark past too, I say let's give him a shot, if he thinks he can do better, let's let him do so.
1: Yeah, Ilyana is very comfortable in moral gray space that maybe the rest of the team hasn't quite felt out enough yet.
0: Magneto, in the meantime, he's sort of getting ready himself, looking at himself in the mirror, in the moments when I am most sane and brutally honest with myself, I know beyond all shadow of a doubt that this is utter madness. I've made a tragic mistake. I am sure to fail, and that will destroy not only me but the new mutants as well, the children, the generation, the hope for the future I have spent my life trying to save. I suppose I could run away, better by far to be coward rather than traitor, but I will not. Somehow, some way, I must muddle through."
1: And because he is being maudlin right now, he also takes a moment to look at his framed picture of Lee Forrester, the most awesome, you know, non-Peter Corpo baseline human in the Marvel universe. I actually really love that because you see a lot of characters who just sort of disappear or get sidelined. And one of the things I consistently love about Lee Forrester, she is, she is a character who has consistently refused to be an X-Men tag-along. When she's gotten pulled into their stuff, it has been in the course of doing her work. This isn't her leaving saying, I can't deal with your life. It's too complicated. It's her saying, yeah, I need to actually get back to my boat because I'm the captain and this is my life. My life is not being the token X-Men girlfriend.
0: The characters all meet up in the danger room and they do the usual thing of they each come after Magneto one on one and that doesn't work. And then they team up. And that doesn't work either. Normally, in these situations, like that's what takes care of it. Like, oh, yay, teamwork saves the day. Magneto just kicks all their asses, you know? He reverses gravity to screw things up for the uh, new mutants. He zaps Warlock, who then turns into a sort of a single spaghetti strand of techno organic fiber.
1: Truly. Magnetism is a miraculously versatile force.
0: Yes, it is. It was It wasn't the Silver Age, and I'm pleased to report that it still is now. I
1: do appreciate that the reason Karma can't get through, they, s- they specify that it's his psychic defenses, not that it's some kind of weird magnetic shield.
0: You know, magnets, because why not? So, after all this, the New Mutants are sort of uh, recovering and commiserating in Harry's hideaway, which is the bar that's somewhat near the Xavier Institute, where we've seen them hang out before. Where all
1: the teenagers hang out. <laughs>
0: apparently. And, um, you know, they're all kind of conflicted, like Shan is saying she doesn't even really want to be a superhero, she just wants to take care of her her kids siblings. Bobby's saying that you know he thinks Magneto's even worse than Emma Frost, who runs the Massachusetts Academy. They're just really not sure that any of this is a very good plan. Danielle is like, hey, I'll catch up with you guys later. I'm gonna take a walk to clear my head and she's actually followed by some patrons from Harry's Hideaway who are just terrible, terrible human beings. Yeah,
1: they decide that they're going to drag her, pull her into their car, and they heavily insinuated that they plan to rape her, except that what they don't know is that Daniel Moonstar is a Valkyrie, which means she has a huge fucking angry winged horse that will come kick your ass if you mess with her.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Brightwind shows up out of nowhere, sensing that Danielle is threatened, and—
1: You know, so this is something I have really mixed feelings about, and some of it is that I've been writing about Evolution Season 1— episode 4, so writing a lot about the decision to make significant moments for powerful female characters be about victimhood or potential victimhood is one that I am very uncomfortable with. On the other hand, I kind of feel like this plays out, well, not counting the intervention of the giant winged horse, obviously. This is one of those situations that you get taught to look out for because it's a thing that happens with kind of frightening regularity.
0: Yeah, so the potential rapists uh, flee, understandably. Brightwind brings her back to the, the Xavier Institute, and Magneto's like, alright, what happened? Brightwind, take me to whoever did this. He, he sees, you know, some paint on Brightwind's hooves and figures out probably what happened. And he heads to a nearby college, to a frat house where these guys have, have gone, and kicks their asses. He doesn't actually injure them, but he sort of nails them to the wall with nearby tacks that he pulls out of the walls and melts the gun that one has...
1: I realize that this is important and this is the A-plot, but I feel we would be remiss if we did not note that in the process of all of this, Warlock has a moment of trying to figure out whether the whoop-whoop noises of the rotors are how helicopters talk to each other.
0: Yes, because the New Mutants have sort of snuck along to see what happens at this point. Yeah, so Magneto's is very much in angry god mode, as these jerks are saying, you know, hey, we'll just kill you and it'll be self-defense.
1: And he's once again trying to figure out how to navigate his new role relative to the students as not only their protector, but also their teacher.
0: Once, with far less cause, I would quite cheerfully have slain you, rent your body's limb from limb as easily as I did your house. Indeed, I am sorely tempted. The world would not miss such as you. But I am older, a little sadder, and I hope wiser. I have learned a better way. Mine is the power to destroy, but I choose not to. Profit for my example. The evil you do others returns unto you a thousandfold. It scars both body and far worse soul. Continue down this cruel and bloody road you've chosen, and one day you're certain to meet one not as forgiving as I. Is that what you want? The choice, as ever, remains your own. Farewell.
1: Man, I love this Magneto. I love the Magneto who is very, very aware of the potential for redemption, but also has no tolerance for bullshit.
0: And the New Mutants who are watching all this, they're kind of into it. Magneto is a very different leader than Xavier. He was very much, you know, hey, you have to toe the line, these are the rules. And Magneto says, this world is a strange place where not everything is going to be very clear, and sometimes you have to kick a little ass. And so Magneto heads back home, and the New Mutants do as well. They're trying to sneak in because they're convinced they're going to be in like super trouble for sneaking out. And all he says as he sees them is, Danielle is sleeping upstairs, she's going to be okay, don't wake her up. And the New Mutants realize this is a very different school they're now going to. They can be a lot more independent, for better and for worse.
1: An important difference between Magneto and Professor Xavier is that Magneto is aware very directly and very much from from experience in ways Xavier isn't and can't be that childhood is a very relative state. Now, we're going to put the X characters aside for now for a little bit, and move on to the Avengers, because the Avengers are on the cusp of a very important discovery.
0: Now, on the cover of this issue of Avengers, and the issue of Fantastic Four we'll talk about right after, there's actually a little corner piece saying that this leads up to X Factor. And these are issues, as a kid, I never read, so I never knew how Jean Grey came back. It was kind of cool to finally get a chance to check that out.
1: Avengers 263 opens with angry men in an airplane. These dudes are the Enclave, and they are a group of science villains. They are, in fact, responsible for the creation of Adam Warlock and a female character who, as far as I know, is just named Her. Well,
0: Adam Warlock was actually just called Him for a while. So, so they're not—they're not,
1: they're obviously not very creative with names. And these dudes' main role in this story is to be a massive and throbbing red herring. They're playing crashes in Jamaica Bay.
0: The Avengers uh, come to investigate, specifically Monica Rambeau, the current Captain Marvel. Who
1: is so awesome.
0: And eventually, the rest of the team shows up as well, which includes the new member, Namor the Submariner.
1: Yeah, the B-plot of this issue is all about Namor joining the team for the first time. Basically, he just goes around being absolutely delightful and Namoring up the place. Yes,
0: he does. So what the Avengers find at the bottom of Jamaica Bay, which is right next to JFK Airport, is this sort of cocoon-looking thing.
1: It kind of looks like a crashed submarine
0: covered in barnacles. To me, it kind of looks like a gray McRib sandwich.
1: Anyway, the Avengers are finally able to get it out of the lake, and as they do, it's, it's covering sloughs off, revealing a shiny steel oblong capsule that they can't get into and they can't see the contents of. We, on the other hand, can on the final page of the issue.
0: And that, in fact, is Jean Grey wearing the same black dress we last saw her in before she became Phoenix back in X-Men number 100, a full 101 issues ago.
1: Whoa, dang.
0: Seriously, I also do want to point out that the covering of the cocoon that made it look like something other than what it was is revealed to have been a discarded mattress. What? Yes, exactly. That just, like,
1: managed to, like grow around the cocoon? Was it a sentient mattress?
0: It was a cuddly mattress.
1: What is even happening here?
0: Mattresses. No! And so, yeah, that's, that's basically it for this issue. It, it builds itself as a big tie into the return of Jean Grey, but really very little that happens is actually directly relevant.
1: The next issue is fantastic for 286, and it is titled in large letters, Like a Phoenix, which I will never not hear as you know sung to the opening of Like a Virgin by Madonna. So I just wanted to get that into your head since it's now stuck in mine as well.
0: Committing genocide for the very first time? Yeah. You know. <laughs> um. So yeah, what happens here? This picks up right after the Fantastic Four are heading back to Earth after some space stuff, possibly in the Microverse where they were previously.
1: And at this point, the Fantastic Four are three of the normal members: uh, Reed Richards, Sue Richards and Johnny Storm, but the fourth member is not the Thing, it's actually She-Hulk.
0: Yeah, uh, the Thing left at the end of Secret Wars 1, as you may recall, so She-Hulk has taken his place for the time being. So they head back to the Avengers mansion, where they've been staying since uh, the Baxter building was destroyed a few issues back in their storyline.
1: And I actually want to talk about the opening credits a little bit. I know that's a weird thing to jump onto, but they're interesting in this issue, because this was a really controversial story for a couple of reasons, and you can see clues to that if you look across the credits line. The first and most prominent thing is that it's written and drawn by you-know-who.
0: Right. Now, you-know-who in this case refers to John Byrne, but the story at the very last minute was drastically changed when Marvel Editorial and Chris Claremont decided they want things to go differently.
1: The other credit at the top is a special thanks, and it is to someone named Kurt Busiek with his name spelled wrong, spelled B-U-S-E-K. According to Kurt, quote, it was deliberate snub. It was spelled correctly, and someone had it, quote, corrected, unquote, because they didn't like me being credited if you're not an editor, you might not realize just sort of what a screw you moment it is to deliberately misspell an editor's name in credits.
0: It's true, But, like, that means
1: you can't put that issue in your CV and stuff, and it's a weird passive-aggressive thing.
0: (laughs) That's right. Marvel editorial in the 80s. So, anyway, yeah, the Fantastic Four shows up, they are quickly filled in by the Avengers about this capsule that was found in Jamaica Bay, and Reed Richards is like, hey, that sounds like a science thing, I'm gonna go do science at it. So, yeah, uh, the Invisible Woman makes the exterior of the capsule transparent, and they see a woman inside who they don't recognize, actually.
1: Because they've actually never seen her without a mask. We think of the Phoenix Saga as this big, important era, but there doesn't really intersect with any other superheroes. Like, they're not aware of the whole Phoenix thing that went down. They knew Marvel Girl, but Marvel Girl wore wore a mask. They don't know what her face looks like. So this is just some weird redhead in a tattered ball gown.
0: So Reed Richards works all night and creates this psionic mechanical device to basically pulse psionic energy at her. And pretty soon, Jean Grey bursts out of the capsule.
1: Now, one of the things that Reed does is give her a biostimulant, which we find out later he was not supposed to give to anyone with psionic powers because it would super screw them up. And I wonder if this is was originally intended to have been the source of Jean's loss of telepathy, because she comes back as a very powerful telekinetic, but with no telepathic powers.
0: She also comes back not having remembered anything that had happened since Uncanny X-Men number 100. The last thing she remembered, she was in a space station fighting the sentinel versions of the X-Men created by Dr. Stephen Lang. And
1: so she assumes, justifiably, I think, that these are more of Lang's robot duplicates, because... Let's see, she can't read their minds, which as far as she knows, she's still supposed to be able to. There are people she recognizes, teams she recognizes, but they're a little bit off. Like, the Fantastic Four's costumes are wrong. They're black now, and she knows they used to be blue. She-Hulk is on the Fantastic Four. What the hell?
0: Yeah, and so eventually, the Invisible Woman is able to subdue Jean... And they do calm her down, and it quickly becomes clear that, yeah, she doesn't remember anything that has happened in the last 101 issues of X-Men. Whoops. So, that's interesting. She says, okay, I need to go to Professor Xavier, he can help me figure this out. Captain America says, well, okay, so here's the thing with the X-Men these days. They're outlaws, and they're working with Magneto, so I don't think you should go back there.
1: Oh shit, what is even happening?
0: And so she's like, okay, well fine, if that's not gonna work, then just take me to my parents' house. And the Avengers are like, hey, they think you're dead. She's like, I just need to be somewhere familiar, please take me there. And so they say, okay. In the meantime, Captain America is searching through the Avengers' archives to try to see what's up, and he comes upon a video of the Beast talking about the Dark Phoenix saga and about what happened.
1: Yeah, so just in case this becomes relevant again, Jean died, and she came back as the Phoenix, and uh, some stuff went down, and then she died on the moon, now she's super dead, so you know, Phoenix Force might come back and kill us all.
0: And so Jean goes to the Grey's house and she finds the holo-empathic crystal that Rachel Summers very recently reassembled in Uncanny X-Men 201, and with some encouragement from the Avengers and Fantastic Four, uses that to try to remember what happened. And that's where she remembers the greatest retcon in Marvel Universe history.
1: So let's look at what we saw happen in X-Men 100.
0: So the X-Men beat the X-Sentinels and they need to escape this collapsing space base, but their space shuttle is all borked
1: up. There's an enormous solar flare coming, and the radiation shielding is not going to be sufficient, or at least not the radiation shielding in the parts of the shuttle that they have to be in to actually fly it.
0: Because the autopilot's broken. Jean Grey telepathically absorbs the piloting skills of Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau, who is with them at the time, and basically tells the X-Men, I'm the only one that can do this, my telekinesis will help me survive for long enough to make this happen, get into the shielded part.
1: Cyclops protests, she knocks him out, has the X-Men take him away, and apparently burns up during re-entry only to emerge from Jamaica Bay with an entirely new costume and a highly amped up power set and the codename Phoenix.
0: And here's where we find out what happened in between, which I should point out, at the time, was not the plan. This is total retroactive continuity in the most direct sense of the phrase.
1: Right. Actually, I would recommend, if you're not familiar with the story behind this retcon, that you go back to episode 21, where Kurt Busiek actually came in to talk to us about its origins, because it's really fantastic.
0: What we now see is Jean Grey dying, burning up on re-entry, and meeting up with this giant glowing entity— in the form of a woman. And I do want to say, so this is covered in this issue of the Fantastic Four. This is covered even more thoroughly in the backup story of Classic X-Men number 8. Now, Classic X-Men was basically reprints that were coming out a little bit later than this, around 1987 and onward, that would reprint an issue of Claremont from the beginning of his run with a new backup story that was sort of happening concurrently to that.
1: Or occasionally with additional pages and additional story dropped in mid-issue.
0: At the end of Classic X-Men number 8, which reprints Uncanny X-Men number 100, we see a very detailed version of this
1: what do you want of me
0: you called child of man and i mother of stars answered it is for you to name your heart's desire
1: and i'll get my wish just like that why do i suspect that's too good to be true
0: and i should point out that jean is visibly dying in the art very gruesomely she's becoming emaciated her hair is falling out
1: yeah this is super graphic she's got no skin on the next page
0: all things have their price what's mine does that matter yes i am glad. Take my hands, child, that we too may become one. Your humanity, my power, bonded by passion, tempered by love, the ultimate force, at last given means to express itself.
1: I can't wait, time's almost gone, I have to choose.
0: Be warned, the fire I offer can burn as well as warm, destroy as easily as heal, and it always consumes. The glory I offer is transcendent, likewise the danger. And the flame, once taken, can never be extinguished.
1: The power, it's too much, beyond comprehension. Suppose I can't handle—I'm not worthy! How can I accept?
0: You know that answer already, else you would not have summoned me.
1: I'm afraid.
0: With good reason. Death is the certainty. The end to all burdens all responsibilities, life the greatest of unknowns. Each day, every moment contains risk. Safety and perhaps peace can be found only in the grave, may be salvation or damnation. Or both? Which now is your heart's desire?
1: If the choice was for me alone, I... I... To save the X-Men, i dance with the devil himself! And... and I want to live.
0: All things are possible, child. And you may yet dance with the devil without, and the far more terrible one, within.
1: Wow, so that's a little dramatic.
0: Okay, so I really have two minds about this scene, because I think this scene by itself... ...is awesome. It really gets across the desperation of Jean, the desperation of the situation as her body is just disintegrating, and the power and majesty of the Phoenix.
1: On the other hand, and I suspect this is where you're going with it, the decision to package it with X-Men number 100, with the original Death of Jean, Rise of Phoenix story... Kind of cheapens that.
0: I think it absolutely does, yeah, because, you know, if you're reading X-Men, you go from X-Men 100 to X-Men 137, you know, the Phoenix Dark Phoenix story, and that's just Jean. And so it's this very human tragedy of this human woman having this power that's just more than any human could possibly control and having it burn her out and making the ultimate sacrifice at the end. And with this, we basically learn the phoenix that we knew was the phoenix force with Jean's mind imprinted on it. Jean herself, her body, the part that did not choose, was put into a cocoon and crashed into the bottom of Jamaica Bay to heal.
1: And for all practical purposes, I think it's worth emphasizing, the phoenix was Jean. The reason that it made the decision it did to sacrifice itself at the end, that was Jean. Jean is is the person whose will was strong enough to basically overwrite a cosmic entity.
0: And that's where the decision to have John Byrne credited as you-know-who in that issue of Fantastic Four comes into play, because his plan for that flashback was to have the Phoenix portrayed as this evil, malicious entity trying to steal Jean's body, and having her sort of defense against it being overriding its personality with her own telepathically.
1: So here's the thing. I think some of the most interesting things of what the Phoenix ended up being in the arcs of the Phoenix... Came actually from the push and pull between Byrne and Claremont more than from any individual one of them. The Dark Phoenix destroying that planet was a result of of that.
0: Was a result of Byrne's art that Claremont didn't write totally. And then
1: Claremont's, you know, the way Claremont shifted the story to accommodate that art, you know, the changes here are Claremont overwriting Byrne's narrative. That that push and pull and that tension creates a more interesting story than we might otherwise have. I want to. Can we talk for a second about Jean and the Phoenix?
0: Oh, uh, let's do it. Yeah.
1: Okay, so Jean is someone who the Phoenix Force keeps coming back to and is associated with really closely. For me, it all comes back to that first retcon, that she is kind of the Phoenix's first taste of humanity, and the first person who imprinted on her as powerfully as she imprinted on it.
0: Yeah, because the Phoenix has had other hosts before. We learn that later in continuity, but Jean's kind of the big one.
1: Right. After Jean, almost every time we see the Phoenix Force take a physical form to talk to someone or to manifest— The form that it goes back to is Jean's, and And she remains intrinsically tied to it, too.
0: She does, and there's been some attempts in continuity to imply that Jean was always destined for the Phoenix. I don't really like that plot point, but it has definitely come up as a possibility.
1: Yeah, the Destiny thing bothers me for a lot of reasons. One of them is that, again, I think it cheapens the character, it cheapens one of the coolest parts of the retcon. But also because Jean's running motif and her most significant arcs as a character are all about telling Destiny to go fuck itself. Destiny the concept, not Destiny the character.
0: Right, I mean, she's probably mad at her from some fight at some point, but you know.
1: But yeah, Gina's all about not letting anyone else write her future.
0: And so speaking of that future, the issue of Fantastic Four ends with her not knowing what to do with herself and Reed Richards saying, hey, I've got an idea, and that idea is what's going to lead us into X-Factor. But for now, I think we're out of time, so let's jump into some questions.
1: So Kirby Wonder asks on Tumblr, has Marvel ever done a what-if or alternate timeline where Cyclops stays with Madeline? I wonder if things would still lead to Inferno.
0: Okay, so I looked around at a bunch of different alternate timelines, and Madeline Pryor is in, like, a ton of them. And one thing I found that was interesting is that the way she's in most of those alternate timelines is in various ways being involved with demons, being involved with some form of Inferno. Yeah,
1: I think there's something called the Goblin Force that actually comes up in Mutant X as an independent, significant force.
0: Right. So the one timeline I was able to find where Madeline did not trigger Inferno and also was actually with Scott, because in timelines where she never met Scott, that doesn't seem to happen, was What If Volume 2, Number 74, um, and that was What If Mr. C. Sinister formed the X-Men. He has his own team of X-Men, which is Cyclops, Havoc, Sabretooth, and Madeline. But in this reality, Madeline uh, was never sort of activated by the Phoenix Force being killed on the moon, which is what we'll soon find is actually what created Madeline Pryor.
1: So she's just a hollow clone?
0: She's just a hollow clone, but she's inhabited by the psychic entity Malice. And so we see that even in this universe, Scott's still attracted to her, but Jean, when he meets her, is the one he ends up falling in love with.
1: Because Jean's the one who's actually a person rather than a vehicle for malice.
0: Right, exactly. So there's no Inferno there, but that's kind of a cheat because she's never really Madeline Pryor. So there's also Earth-X that Madeline Pryor is in, but that's so different than the main universe that I don't think you even really want to count it. And so I think what it comes down to is that if Madeline is in a relationship with Scott and Jean does come back, Inferno is effectively destined. once that retcon went to place I think Madeline Pryor as a character was just doomed from there on out which is a damn shame. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, is there in comics explanation as to why Jean Grey stops using a codename after dropping Marvel Girl and X-Factor? Can you explain?
1: She actually did have a codename almost all the time. She only she was only missing one for a few years. She kept using Marvel Girl at least on and off throughout X-Factor. Um when she left that team in late 91, um there was a little bit of a gap. But in 1994, starting with The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, she went by Phoenix again through her death.
0: Yeah, I think uh, most people assume that she was just called Jean Grey for longer, just because that's what she's called in the animated series, X-Men Evolution, the movies. But really in the comic, yeah, it was just like three years or so.
1: I question the use of code name here because it becomes more of a call sign because she doesn't really have a private identity after a point. Like she's Jean Grey, who is the superhero, and Phoenix is the name that gets pulled out in fights sometimes when people remember, but she doesn't wear a mask or anything.
0: Yeah, she's, she's pretty much out as a mutant. That being said, it is kind of weird that there are so many female characters—her, uh, Rachel Summers, a few others—in the Marvel Universe that don't have code names, Or who
1: go through long, long, long strings of them. You don't really see them have one, stop at it, and stay. So, we are listener-supported on Patreon. Some of those tiers come with thanks and a variety of ridiculous voices. I am going to turn it over to the Phoenix Force.
0: Here, above this third orb called the Earth, two souls hang in balance— Between life and death, fire and oblivion, Clint Gilbert and Joel Lee Laberski, what is your heart's desire? To persist? To endure beyond the endurance of your frail physicality? Know that all things have their price. This fire can warm, but so too can it consume. And with that, let's turn to a Claremont angry narrator caption.
1: Were you so busy with your cogs and tools, gadget chaser, that you missed the rising threat of Bill Schmedlin? Now the entire universe will pay for your oversight. I hope you're both very proud of yourselves.
0: And with that, we are out of time.
1: Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast, Full of Sith.
0: New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website, rachelandmiles.com. You
1: can also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, companion posts, essays, fan art, recaps of X-Men evolution, and much, much more.
0: Like you were saying, this podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. It's made possible by our generous Patreon supporters, who are awesome. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website.
1: Next week, we'll be following the aftermath of Gene's resurrection into the opening issues of an all-new series with a very familiar team.
0: Welcome to X-Factor. Hope you survive the experience.